0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Good morning church. Uh, Let's continue to worship our Lord through the preaching of his word. Would you join me in praying? Father in heaven, I ask that you would prepare our hearts God and prepare our minds Lord to delight ourselves in your word. I pray Lord if we've come in this morning, uh, maybe a difficult car ride on the way here, or we're coming in and our minds are on what lies ahead, the week, the challenges, uh, or just any kind of baggage, that by your grace that could be suspended even for this moment, because that is enough. And so Lord, uh, posture our hearts for your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn to Proverbs chapter 14. And we are at that place where basically from chapter 10 up into chapter 30, each verse in the Proverbs are a self-contained thought where almost each verse is is a individual, complete statement in and of itself. And to be perfectly honest, it makes exposition a little bit challenging. But every now and then you will find one that really strikes a chord. Uh, We were about a little over a month ago planning our church staff Christmas dinner and the topic of dessert came up. And I'm sitting next to Pastor Calvin Clark who is a diabetic and he has to regulate his insulin through injections and uh, he kinda leans in next to me and somebody throws out a dessert and he said, can't have that. And then another dessert was thrown out and man, I can't have that either. And this kind of went on for a while and then finally the last dessert was thrown out and Calvin's eyes kind of lit up and he said, I'll bring my shots. <laughs> <laughs> Proverbs often work like that. Each one is an individual dessert, but sometimes one will really resonate with you. And uh, and every now and then one will just kind of cut you deep or be a balm on your wound. And so as we go through that, think about that. Lord, what, what verse in just these few six would you have me? Uh, do you want one to hit me like a, a shot to the jugular? <laughs> or would you have one kind of just, just white, just come across my entire person like birdshot where the whole thing just, Uh, hits me lightly, one BB at a time. In verse one, we read, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Verses one through six in this Hebrew poetry, this wisdom poetry, uh, are all contrasting parallelisms. And so the parallel in verse one is, we see two women. Uh, There are two houses. And the contrast is, One woman is wise, the other is foolish. The contrast is one builds up her house, the other tears it down with her own hands. That word woman, the wise woman, is actually plural in Hebrew, making a literal translation the wisdom of women, or womanly wisdom. And so what is stated here in verse one is a kind of timeless Fact or principle of wisdom. It's good to keep in mind that Proverbs are principles, not promises. Oftentimes, their application is determined on the context. And so sometimes it's wise to do this, sometimes it's unwise to do this, depending on the context. Correct a fool in this context, don't correct a fool in this context. And so they're timeless facts, Uh, Of principles of wisdom. And here we see that this is a womanly principle, a principle of women. Now it's interesting in Proverbs that you have lady wisdom and you have lady folly and they're both described as having homes. Uh, The wise woman or a wise woman takes pain to build her house. She Labors to build her house. She works to build and to fortify her home. This is a principle of womanly wisdom. We see in the New Testament, Paul brings this out. He says, I I desire that young women would get married, that they would start families, and that they would care for their home. Now, if you have joined, Club crush the patriarchy. I have just committed an act of violence and a hate crime, (laughs) which, you know, throughout all of human history wouldn't have been up until about 15 minutes ago. Uh, But our worldview is far more extensive than that. We see that in Proverbs, that this book of wisdom closes in chapter 31 with Lady Wisdom, Wisdom personified as a mother, and not just as a mother who is keeping home, but she has at least 10 jobs. One could argue that there is no creature more industrious under heaven than a woman of wisdom. She has not only does she care for her home, but she is an entrepreneurial spirit within her. And so a wise woman and a wife is no more chained to her home than a bird is to its wings. And the point of this verse in this wisdom literature is that God is simply uniquely designed a wife to thrive in her home in a way that no other creature can. In fact, that really derogatory term, uh, housekeeper or keep house, um, is actually the word despotane. It's a compound word from oikos, meaning house, and from the noun despotes, where we get the word despot, often used derogatorily as a, uh, for a dictator, but in the Bible, Jesus is called a despotase. he's the master, he's the ruler. And so that really hateful word, keep house, I say that jokingly, um, is actually house ruler, house keeper, house master. The master of the house. And so, Paul's point here and in this text is that God has called the husband to be the leader of the home, but he has the God-given responsibility to delegate that authority over to his wife. She is the house master. She is uniquely designed to do things he simply cannot do. And so whenever I come into my house and I track mud through the floor and my wife says, husband, I say, yes, wife, She says, you track mud through the floor. Indeed I did. I was out in the mud. She says, no, you take your shoes off, leave them at the door. Okay. When my wife says, hey, honey, uh, the laundry basket, uh, I noticed that that T-shirt, it wasn't on the floor, good job, baby steps, but it also wasn't in, it was hanging on the rim. I don't care that it was a three-point shot, fade away from downtown, <laughs> did it go in? No, it didn't, all right, no, no points. Get it in, okay. I honor that role God has given her under my leadership. I am responsible to delegate that authority to her. And I'll be just quite frank with you, it's always a little discouraging to be in the context where people are kind of going around in a circle and sharing what they do and when a mother or a wife says, Uh, I keep house, and there's almost a downer to it. And I don't find anything more rewarding than to come into a home, maybe one of your homes, or to even see in my home, and to see a house that is being nurtured and being built up in love and security, and to know that those children and my children are being raised in, a, in that kind of environment that one day they will blossom forth into manhood and, a, and womanhood in a home where there's love and security and peace. There's really nothing quite more amazing than to see that in people's homes. And so I, I'm not sure there's anything more rewarding than being an excellent homemaker. In fact, C.S. Lewis, you know, if you really wanna make a point, you just quote him. He said, the homemaker has the ultimate career. All other careers exist for one purpose only, and that is to support the ultimate career. And he's right. You see, if you want to know where a society is going, if you want to judge a civilization, there is a direct correlation between a society and a civilization and the health of the home. If you want to change a society, what do you have to do? You gotta get into the home. If you want a healthy society, you have to have a healthy home. So it's no wonder that when people want to change a society, they, don't, they want to leave you in secret as to what they're teaching your children or to get, you out, get them out of there as much as possible because this is a principle of wisdom. A strong house leads to a strong civilization because a home is the building blocks for society. And so a wise woman, a principle of wisdom is that she builds her house. She fortifies it, she labors And the husband is called to support her in that role and to delegate that authority to her under his leadership. A wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. And uh, Verse two, he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Contrasting parallelism again. The parallel, you have two men, two people. And you see that there are two paths. There's one who walks and then there's ways. This refers to your manner of life, your lifestyle. You've heard of somebody walking the walk. How's your walk with God? What's your journey like? And so this is referring to how you live your life. And there's a connection then between one's view of God with one's moral conduct. In fact, the evidence for your view of God will be shown in how you live your life. Your view of God will manifest in your decisions, in your moral conduct. And so sometimes it's really good to just take a hard look, hey, how am I living, and then ask the question, where is my thinking wrong about God? The upright, it's the same word for straight, they stick to what God has upheld as true. The upright stick to the moral boundaries laid out by God. It's called the straight way. Scripture refers to this as the ancient way. Jesus says, wide is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. There is a narrow gate. If your philosophy of life never disagrees with you, if your religion never disagrees with you, if your God never disagrees with how you live, then it's likely you have usurped God Almighty and you have become your own God. The devious, which is the same word for crooked or perverse, they despise God. These, the devious are those who have deviated we have departed from the moral boundaries of God laid out. I think it was Albert Muller who said, the creature cannot defy the creation without a cost to the creature. Think about that. Anytime you try to circumvent or to deviate God's moral boundaries, it always comes at a cost. And the same is true in the physical world. Just as the laws of physics in creation, which are set by God, cause pain if you try to defy them, truly defy them, you just take a trip, you fall to the ground. You can't defy that. Just as one cannot defy the physical laws found in nature, one can no more defy the moral laws found in creation. Both are just as objective and as true. They both find their source in God. He is upholding one and the other come from his very nature. The physical laws of creation are just as concrete as the moral laws of revelation. And those who try find that they cannot and therefore despise him. It's interesting that word despise. Whenever God is the object of of being despised, when he's the one despised, in scripture it's almost always referring to uh, the word of God. And usually it's either referring to a word from a prophet or scripture itself. You remember David uh, is confronted by a prophet named Nathan. And he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing this evil? You have killed Uriah the Hittite. You have taken his wife to be your wife, perversion, and you have struck him down with the sword by the sons of Ammon. Therefore, now the sword will not depart from your house. That word despised actually means to make light of something. And I remember Dr. Bailey in BE 101, a class in seminary that every seminarian is required to take, put all hundred, took all 150 students to this text in 2 Samuel. And he said that word despised means to look down upon. He says we're all susceptible to despising the word of God. And our danger then is to look down upon the word of God instead of submitting ourselves under the word of God. Then he looked at all of us want to be ministers and said, which one are you? Do you look down upon the word of God? If you do, you're scoffing at him. Or do you submit yourself under? And that is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. If you want to walk in uprightness church, recognize the personhood of God and who he is and how he has revealed himself. And that in that proper relationship between creator And creature there is a path that we are privileged to take Proverbs depicts the whole Bible depicts there's only two ways of living there's the way of life the way of death the way of judgment the way of justification the way of folly the way of wisdom and by God's grace We simply position and posture ourselves in a particular way before our Creator in order to walk in the upright path. And by His grace, He nudges us along and keeps us on the journey, and this is what it means to fear the Lord. Verse three, in the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect them, contrasting Parallelism, the parallel, mouth, lips. This is referring to speech, the things that come out of your mouth. Our words are very important. Our words can be devastating. Hardly anything can cut deeper than words, hardly anything can sting more than words. And so we have two people, both speaking. The contrast is one is foolish. The other is wise. One has a rod, which means pain. The other, protection. And so the meaning is relatively clear in this verse. The foolish are gonna be punished by what they say. But the wise will be protected by what they say. Now it's interesting that word rod is not the normal word used for rod. In fact, it's only used one other time in the entire Bible. It's used in Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, referring to the coming Messiah. Then a shoot, that's the word, the same word translated here for rod, will spring from the stem of Jesse. So this is referring to, a prophet, this is a prophetic utterance for when Christ comes centuries later that it begins now, this prophetic utterance will begin now but will mature and come to fruition later. And this word for rod has the idea of a little sprig that begins to sprout and then grows to maturity, kind of like the prophecy begins and then comes to pass. And what this means, this word picture that there's uh, a rod in the fool's mouth, the foolish is a rod for his back, The idea is that a fool's words will begin small, but then over time they will eventually mature and become an instrument for his own lashing. You've heard the figure of speech, give them enough rope and they will hang themselves. And so here it's kind of the same idea. Let a fool talk long enough and eventually his words will become his own worst enemy. Can our words get us in trouble? When my wife was pregnant with our first child, she was, she was uh, beginning to get to that really uncomfortable place and, uh, in her pregnancy and she was just so cute and uh, we were so excited, there were so many unexpected things and we decided to go out and eat uh, a meal to kind of relieve her and uh, me from having to cook and it was a big deal because we, d- we don't do dates very often. Um, some will say because we didn't have money, others will say it's because I'm not romantic. Uh, and we, we went to this restaurant and it was pouring rain and we had finished our meal, everything was going well, we we're walking out the door, I haven't messed up yet and I'm holding the umbrella and it's, it's pouring rain. One of those where you, it's, you just step out and you get soaked immediately. And I'm holding the umbrella, and of course, objective number one is to shield my very pregnant wife from the rain. But, you know, there's an objective number two, and that's to shield myself from the rain. But you, will, you know how, whenever you're walking someone to a car and you plan on opening the door and then sliding in, there's that transition. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's where we both go from being under the umbrella to where she's getting in the car and she's only under the umbrella and she is moving as fast as she can, which wasn't very fast. And she's getting herself in the car, and then she, she turns and looks at me, and I'm, just, I'm holding the umbrella like this, and I'm getting drenched, and she starts batting her eyes at me. And I can only think that, you know, maybe it looked like a scene out of The Notebook. But she looks at me and goes, you are so romantic. And to show her how romantic I am, I said, get in the car. <laughs> and she just went oh. And I remember walking, no point in carrying the umbrella at this point in time, I remember walking around and thinking, you fool, she would, if you would have just kept your mouth shut, she would have thought you were actually romantic which everybody knows is not true. (laughs) Sometimes if we just keep our mouths shut. Uh, It was said uh, of President Calvin Coolidge that uh, he was a very reserved man. In fact, they called him Calvin Silent Coolidge. And one day they asked him why he was so silent and he says, I have never regretted anything I didn't say. (laughs) So true. But the lips of the wise will protect them. That word protect is the word shamar. It's related to the word shema. You may have heard that word shema. It means to hear with the connotation of obedience. You hear, hey son, do you hear me? In other words, obey what I'm saying. To hear, literally, with the connotation to obey. Well, the word shamar means to see with the connotation to keep. And it's used of, in many places in scripture, but of Jacob tending Laban's flock as a shepherd, and it's also used of uh, night guards watching the city. While everybody's asleep, the watchmen lay awake and, and protect the city. And so this words or this word, protect, illustrates something, that wise words function like a shepherd and a guardian For those who use them, I used to listen to a pastor, and I know it's kind of corny, but he would say, We should all think wisely about what comes out of our mouth. And he gave this acronym for think about thinking wisely. And he'd say, T, is it truthful? Not just partially true, not just true facts that are rearranged to implicate something else, but is it full of truth? Good. H, is it helpful? Does it actually better the person for hearing it? Good, check. I, is it inspiring? Does it edify and lift them up? Yes, okay, good, do it. N, is it needful? Is it actually needed that you share this or do you just like to hear yourself speak? And K, is it kind? Or is it hateful because words, nothing cuts like them? And so if you think wisely about what you say, your words will serve to protect you like a shepherd and like a guardian. they for your benefit. God has given us his word so it may be applied to us that we amongst all people should walk in a diligent and wise way, that we have divine revelation given to us for the purpose of application, to become like Christ, to walk in the very wisdom of God laid out before us. And so the lips of the wise will protect them. And may I, I pray we would all grow in this. I just think about the impact we could have as, of a, as a society, as a people of God in our society by just watching what we say. How long does it take to discredit a politician? One sentence. How long does it take to discredit your reputation? How long does it take to discredit your influence? Very little. And so if we would be people of wisdom, I think we would have such a great impact by, just the, by virtue of just what comes out of our mouth to think wisely about these things. Verse four, where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of an ox. And again, this is a contrasting parallelism, but I'm just gonna leave it at having ox, not having ox. And the idea of revenue, much revenue comes, the idea of revenue is uh, the produce that's gathered in during harvest time. It's the exact same word, it's the yield from all your labor. And here's the logic of that first colon, that first clause, where no oxen are the manger is clean. The idea is, with no oxen, you save yourself work because there's no cleaning to do. With no oxen, you save yourself time because there's no animals to care for. With no oxen, you save yourself expenses because there's no animals to feed. But as this verse will show, this is a bit of a false economy. And you've probably heard of that phrase. I don't know where I got it, but, Nothing costs nothing but brings nothing. And so the apparent advantage of not of having nothing, of having no ox, of having no feed, is gonna be offset by the benefits of working ox because the benefits of working oxen far exceed the cost to maintain them. And we're gonna draw out a principle from here. Much revenue comes by the strength of an ox. And so here is the logic, keep in mind that the uh, oxen were the, the king of the domesticated animal in the ancient world, and oxen were a necessity for agricultural production and wealth. You can fill in the blank in your own life. What is the necessity for being a life, living a life that produces something valuable? So oxen are a necessity, but not just any kind of oxen. What's the modifier there? Strength of an ox, a strong ox, a healthy ox. Well, how do you get a strong ox? Well, you gotta feed it plenty of grain. You gotta give it weight gainer. You gotta give it gluten. My favorite diet, protein shakes, right? Where do you feed the oxen? In the stable. What happens to the stable? It gets messy. So what do you have to do? You have to keep in mind that from, if, in order for me to have a, a harvest or a productive life, there's gonna be a mess that I'm gonna have to clean and maintain. Wealth equals production minus consumption. That there are things that are going to be consumed. This grain to maintain the ox is going to be consumed. But the produce from working the ox far exceeds the cost. And so there's wealth there. The principle is that a productive life a life of consequence. If you wanna live a life of result and meaning, there's going to be, a, there's going to, it's going to require an investment. It's gonna require an investment of your time. You're going to have to give up time. It's gonna require an investment of your money. You're going to have to put in money. You're going to have to work, and you're going to have to invest these things to live this kind of life. Oftentimes, Proverbs describes pursuing wealth as a good thing. And so this is an encouragement to work hard. And it's, we're an interesting place as a society right now. And you know, I'm, I'm mostly, my context is limited, but I can draw from history. And I see that there is almost a, a, a cultural malaise, a malaise over our people, a lethargy in our country right now, and so, of all people, we need to be those who invest our lives into things that produce an abundant harvest. There's an old Christian phrase in Latin. It's laboramus and it means let us be doing. And it was a phrase when there was a time when like all Christians knew Latin and this was a motto that Christians would say to each other. Let us be doing. Let us be doing. Let not us just be hearers, but let us be doing. Get on mission, let's go, get to work. And so the same can be true of the Christian life, that if you want to live a productive Christian life of influence, where moth does not eat and where rust does not cause to disappear, you're going to have to live a grace-driven, diligent and disciplined life that if you wanna grow in the Lord, it's going to take a little bit of discipline. If you wanna grow in the Lord, it's gonna take a little bit of diligence. If you want your kids to grow in the Lord, they're gonna have to see it in you first. And so, but this is driven by the goodness of God. The more that God discloses himself to us, the more insight we get from him out of his word, the easier it becomes, because our perception of who he is becomes more clear, and we're thinking, wow, how come I haven't been doing this my whole life? Tom has a great statement that I, he said in Young Guns, and I've, it's always stuck with me. He says, I've never gotten over my Bible. Think about this, you get over everything in life. Everything in life you can eventually get over, but there is something true because God's word is settled in heaven. The sum of thy word is truth. And so I can, I've never gotten over my Bible. And if you wanna have a productive life that goes on, that means something in glory, you're gonna have to get involved with people. And people are messy. Life is messy. But it's worth it because there's a great harvest. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers that are few. So let us Be doing. Verse five, a trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. Okay, the parallel, this is a legal setting. You've got two witnesses, both are speaking. The contrast here is one is trustworthy, the other is false. One does not lie, one lies. And so the focus here is on the contrasting character of the two witnesses, of the two witnesses, that when they are put on trial, when they have to stand before a committee, the judge, when push comes to shove, their true character shows up. And so a Christian, when tested, God willing, we never swerve nor deny the truth because we claim that there is the truth. We claim that Jesus is the way, the life, definite article, the, 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 not a way, a truth. And so may we be above all else a kind of people that if you don't believe the message, at least believe in our witness. And what's interesting about this verse five is the arrangement of the verbs. The verbs kind of call our attention and the main focus in the first clause, a trustworthy witness will not lie is the verb will not lie. That is actually, in Hebrew it literally says, uh, will lie not. The verb is will lie. Not, modified by not, so will not lie. And that is the action, the main action of a trustworthy witness. This is what a trustworthy witness does. But what's interesting about the false witness, but a false witness utters lies. The main action is not lies. It's what comes out, utters. It's the word that means breathes out. That's the verb there, that's the action of the false witness, and it means to blow or to breathe out. And the picture being drawn here is that this is the natural function, like one just breathes in and breathes out. This is the natural function of a false witness when put on trial. When the pressure comes, this is what happens. He breathes out lies, one lie on top of another. There's a movie that came out in the 90s and it had this interesting kind of famous line and it goes like, the best lie the devil ever told was that he doesn't exist or is that he doesn't exist. And you find that in the movie, the character is the figurative devil. And I'll let you do your research if you wanna know the movie. Um, And the movie closes out with this person in the office of a detective being grilled with questions and he's got an answer for everything. And you're just like, wow, this guy is brilliant because you know it's not true. And you realize at the very, very end of the movie that his entire story was made up and the way he was able to make it up so brilliantly was that he was just looking around at things in the office and stringing together a story by what he saw. He saw a poster and there was a word in the poster. He saw a book title and there was a word in the book title. And he made a story out of that. It'd be something like this. I'm standing there in front of the detective and he says, well, what were you doing on the night of Whatever. And I look up, I kind of look around me, and I, uh, I, was, I was at the movies. Oh yeah? Why were you at the, I saw the big screen. I said, oh, uh, what movie were you seeing? That's a likely story. What were you watching? Sister Act. Do Oh yeah? Well, what's that about? What color's your shirt? Blue, I really don't know what it's about. I was too distracted by the lady in the blue shirt in the front row, and he just goes around. What were you doing that day? He sees the instruments. I was uh, auditioning in a band. Oh, yeah? What band? The Kin dolls, (laughs) you know? What were you wearing? Uh, My Sunday's best. And you know, and he just fabricates this story, and it's one lie on top of another lie. That when he was confronted by an authority and put under pressure, it wasn't truth that came out, but he was breathing out lie after lie after lie after lie. And Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 7. He says, Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. You will know them by their fruit. And so we are gonna be known, our character as believers who claim to follow a king who will return again, our character and our witness will be known in effect by what we say. And even more so, when push comes to shove, when things get tough, what is going to come out of our mouths? A trustworthy witness, a Christian, will not lie. May that be our resolve. God, help us when we do, to be quick to confess, to come back to you, to look to the cross. But man, may we be a people You may not like us, but one thing's for sure, they're gonna tell you the truth. I say amen to that. Verse six, a scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, but the knowledge is easy to one who has understanding. Contrasting parallelism. You have two people, both are in pursuit. They're both seeking something. It's wisdom and knowledge, synonymous terms in the book of Proverbs. However, the contrast here is there's a scoffer and then there's one with understanding. Now a scoffer, a scoffer is anyone who is between a dupe and a a keen intellect a scoffer is simply a person that has an exaggerated opinion of themselves. And so if you have an exaggerated opinion of yourself, your pursuit of wisdom will not lead you to God, but back to yourself. And so a scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none. But knowledge is easy to one who has understanding. You know, God may have a very unique way of keeping us humble. I found in the first service it was that I skipped verses multiple times. Did I do that today? Did I skipped. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm so humble. <laughs> There's a story about uh, Henry Ironside, a famous DTS prof, and uh, he, he really struggled with humility and he would get called out upon it and finally he was like, okay, I struggle with humility so much, what is it that you'd have me do? He goes, somebody said, I know what you can do. You can walk up and down the streets of the city with one of those sandwich signs on the front and back that says, Jesus is Lord. And you just walk up and down that city sidewalk all day long, and he did. And he walked away, he said, man, that really is humbling. Wow, that was humbling. I bet no other pastor in town would do what I just did. (laughs) Jesus said, I thank thee, O Lord, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, all creation, everything that can be known because he is Lord who is created. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou did hide these things from the wise and intelligent and did reveal them unto babes. One thing that we have to learn as Christians is that knowledge and wisdom has far less to do with our mental capacity as it does with one's posture and position before God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10, it's the theme of the book. I can tell you so many times where I had a bad attitude coming into a sermon, I was like, ah, it didn't really do it for me today and then I could go and listen to the same exact sermon, but I've woken up on a different side of the bed and being like, wow, that was a great sermon, it just fed my soul so much. The sermon was the same, what was different? Me, the, path, the posture of my heart, the receptivity of the word. When Jesus gives the parable of the sowers, we tend, we call it the parable of the sower because he's casting seed, but really it's the parable of the soil. It's the soil that's different. The word is the same. Some soil is receptive, some soil is not. And so our heart is like soil. Is it receptive to the truth? And so a a, a knowledge is easy to one who has understanding because one who has understanding recognizes that he submits himself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That there's no arena in our lives that should escape him. There's no partiality with God. If you ever noticed, all models in scripture are completely sold out. Every person that's depicted, every man and every woman that's depicted as, hey, you need to be like them, are completely sold out for God. And what that, that is the fear of the Lord in effect. Because the fear of the Lord is recognizing, okay, these are all the things that my life, that involve my life and that my life are involved in is involved in, and so I'm going to seek to bring them under the authority of God. And under the authority of God, then I go out and steward those things and exercise uh, my stewardship and dominion in the authority of God. But whenever I come out from under the authority of God, now I'm, in a, I'm a competing authority with God. And so for a scoffer, they pursue God. But God doesn't disclose himself to them. Everything we know about God is by virtue of his willingness to disclose it. If God didn't want to be known, he would simply have done nothing. But everything we know about God is because he has allowed himself to be known. And so... Knowledge is easy for the person who has understanding because they submit under the lordship of Christ. We are told that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God, that all things are bound up in him. And not only that, but because if you follow Christ, you're going to follow his word. And so we submit under the the authority of scripture by virtue of the authority of its author. This is God's voice communicating to you. I think it was Anselm, a uh, middle or middle-ages theologian, who said, I do not know, I do not know that I might understand, but I uh, but I believe that I might know. In other words, I do not need to know these things, the ins and outs exhaustively for me to believe them and Anselm was a great intellect, but he said, I believe that I might know. In other words, your faith precedes understanding. Your faith precedes wisdom. And faith is recognizing that as the creature I submit under the creator. And as such, God discloses himself. To me, the Christian worldview is consistent. It's not contradictory. It's consistent because it's revealed by God. And and it corresponds to reality, to the way things really are, which means that it's going to meet you in life regardless of the situation at hand, that it speaks to it. And the Christian message is simple. It's not simplistic. It's uncomplicated, though it is complex in that it is comprehensive in what it touches. It touches every element of life, every philosophy of life, anthropologically, theologically, every experience. The Christian worldview has something to say to that. And the Christian message is simple. We affirm that God exists. We assume that God exists. We suppose, we presuppose that God exists. In the beginning, God. For us, it's not a subject of debate. Though we can have reasonable argumentation for why. But in the beginning, God was, and then He created, and He created all things, all things good. Well, hold on. When I look around the world today, I, I don't see a, I see some good, but I see a whole lot of bad too. When I turn on the television today and I watch the news, I see a whole lot of brokenness. When I look at our polit- political system, I do not see good, I see brokenness. When I get on social media, I see the devastation in people's lives, the brokenness people are experiencing, the suffering. When I look at the family, I I see brokenness. When I take a good look at myself, I say, I am broken. So if God created all things good, how come there is so much brokenness in the world? How come I see brokenness Everywhere, The Bible says that this brokenness is the result of sin. And that this sin goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three and has been inherited and passed along to every single human who has ever lived since. And that because we are born into this sin, we are born into a place of separation from a holy and righteous and just God. And as such, we are placed under his judgment. We are born rebels against him by nature. And so the world is broken, but we have a good God and he's a good God because he's provided a solution to the sin problem. He's provided Jesus Christ the solution, not only to the sin problem, but to all history. Everything is gonna be summed up in him. All wrongs will be made right. And that we're told that this sin issue that keeps me separated from God is resolved in Christ by turning from not trusting in Jesus and turning to trusting in Jesus. And scripture says when a person does that, they are given a new life. The old life that I was born into is done away with and I am born again into a new life. I am regenerated. And that's because Jesus is my substitute. Because God is just, he's going to judge sin. If he didn't, he wouldn't be a good judge. He wouldn't be a good God. So my sin has to be dealt with. Now I can stand before God on my own behalf and on my own merit. It is appointed for man to die once, then the judgment. Or I can take God's solution to the sin problem and Jesus can stand in on my behalf and his holy and righteous and perfect life, who fulfilled, who perfectly submitted himself under the authority of God, who perfectly fulfilled the word of God. The benefits of such a life can be now imputed into me by faith, as if I lived the life Christ lived. It becomes mine, and God's wrath for my sin was placed on him, so it's dealt with. And then I'm told I'm justified, that I'm given a new status before God, I have a new position before this holy and wonderful God. And it is all an act of God's grace. It's not something I can earn. It's not something I do by good deeds. It's something that I simply receive. The only thing I can contribute to my salvation is the need. I need to be saved. And the channel of that grace is faith by trusting that this is what Jesus did. You look at Jesus in his earthly ministry as king. He proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand because he is the king and he went around and he healed the sick. He touched the untouchable. He loved the unlovable, the unloved. He raised people from the dead. He fed the impoverished. He exercised authority over nature. He is God of creation. He exercised authority over the supernatural showing us this is what it looks like for Jesus to be king. This is what it looks like when Jesus reigns as king on earth. But there's an interlude. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus said, I came to give my life a ransom. So turn and trust in him if you've never done that. And one day Christ will return and exercise full authority. And we long for that day as the people of God. All brokenness will be mended. Everything will be good. And so trust him as your savior. Solomon tells us that the purpose of the book of Proverbs is to know wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion, a wise man will hear and increase in learning. May we today as the people of God not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Let us be doing God's will. And so my prayer is that God gave you some dessert this morning, as something struck a chord with you, that you're willing to get your hands dirty. May we not just be hearers, but doers of the word. Would you please stand up this morning? If you need direct ministry today, If today was the first time that you said, you know what, I I have trusted Jesus Christ, I I now want to follow him, teach me how. If you've been a believer for a long time but have never been discipled, you've just shown up on Sundays and you've, you've never really grown in the Lord by those who have gone before you. Or if today you said, I'm done sitting on the sidelines, I'm ready to get involved, how can I disciple men? How can I disciple women? come and, and join us at starting point after service today. If you'd like somebody to pray for you this morning, if there is a, something going on this week that almost kept you from even listening to a word I said, that's a sign you need prayer. God answers prayer, he operates, he changes history through prayer. If something is plaguing your mind, you have a wayward child, You're stressed about something. Something is looming on your mind, that is a sign. Do not leave here without just grabbing somebody and saying, hey, would you pray for me? We're gonna have prayer teams down here to do that who would love to pray for you. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us access into your very presence that we may receive mercy and find help in this time of need. And I pray, God Almighty, that through your spirit, you would enable us to be doers of your word, to be trustworthy witnesses, to walk the ancient path. And I pray, God, that we would exude Christ to the world around us for your glory and for his name's sake, amen.